Well, we've been, we're going to continue on today um, with our look at spiritual warfare. We've been wrapping up our study of the book of Ephesians, and you know, Paul spent the first five chapters talking about the wonderful life that God um, has available to, the, to us when we're in Christ. That if we're in Christ, we experience this incredible life of, of transformation that can take place. And then when we're transformed and we gather together in the church, this new creation of God called the church, that then as we are changed people living in this brand new thing called the church, um, that we literally radiate the goodness and glory of God to, to humanity and to the heavenly host. And then Paul, after talking about all that goodness, adds this last little section that we spent, like this is our, our fourth week spending on this last section, and we'll spend about seven weeks on it probably total. Um, he adds this last section to the letter of, of, to the Ephesians, and in, I've been telling you it's kind of like an asterisk at the end of a, that, that says, oh, pay attention to something here. It's a little addition on the end that he is explaining to us in context of the whole rest of the letter, and we've talked about the last couple of weeks, that if you take this out of context, you can make it say things it's not supposed to say. But if you put it in context of the letter that Paul's writing to the Ephesians, he's basically telling them, he's saying, listen, this is all the good things God has in store for you. However, just by the way, pay attention to the fact that the devil wants to make sure that it doesn't happen. And that's what he's saying. The devil's got a plan against you. He's going to scheme against you. But then Paul goes on to add in the section we're looking at here, he says, you know what, this is basically the Mark version of what he says. He says, sure, the devil is fighting against you, but God has given you all that you need to stand firm against these attacks of the devil, that he will give all of us what we need to win the spiritual battle that we're in. And what we're finding is that's what the armor of God is all about. They are the, so we're looking at these different things in this last section that he calls the armor of God, that they are the tools or the ways that God has given us to stand strong against the devil's schemes and attacks in our life. Now, last time we were together, um, that we looked in this, looking at this, this truth, uh, looking at the armor of God, we looked at truth as a part of the armor of God and how that enables us to stand firm against the lies of the devil, how truth enables us um, to win the war against the devil. So now today we're going to move on to the next piece of the armor of God that Paul says God has provided for us so that we can win the war. So grab your Bible, open it up to Ephesians chapter 6. Again, I think your Bibles open to Ephesians automatically, don't they? Ephesians chapter 6. And we're just going to read, we're going to read the same verse we looked at last time, but we're going to look at the second half of it. So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14. It says that stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, as we looked at last week, and now this time, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So the weapon that we want to look at today that will render the attacks of the devil um, impotent is this idea of righteousness. Now, let's think about this. How does righteousness enable us to stand strong against the attacks of the devil? To stand strong against his schemes? To lie to us? Remember what a scheme is? We defined it very clearly when we looked at this a few weeks ago. His scheme is primarily to lie to us about other people and slander other people to us or to lie to us about ourselves, all of that causing disunity so that we live lives that are less than 
the life that God intends for us. We're transformed people living together in this thing called the church that then radiates the glory of God. So that's the, that's the goal that we're shooting for. So the devil's schemes are to destroy that plan. So how would righteousness enable us to stand strong? How does righteousness play into this? Well, first of all, I think that we need to understand here what is being said and what is not being said. Because here's my, my belief about this particular part of the armor of God. Um, that what is not being said is what we probably generally think is being said. So I want to talk about what's not being said first, okay? So in order to do that, let's think about this. He's talking about righteousness. What does righteousness mean? Well, in a somewhat negative sense of the word, it means the faultless or guiltlessness that we have um, with reference to our, to man's um, uh, conformity to God's holiness. That God has these holy standards and righteousness has something to do with our faultlessness, or our guiltlessness in connection to are we doing it God's way. Scripture says this, it says, be holy as I am holy. So righteousness means living up to God's standard. Now let's think about that. How could that relate to Paul's teaching here about resisting the schemes of the devil? Remember, we're talking about right now what it really doesn't mean, okay? So what could our thought process be in relationship to righteousness and, and resisting the schemes of the What could it be? It could be like this. We could say this. God is righteous. And is he? Yes, God is righteous. So God tells his followers to be righteous. So if I'm not righteous, it gives the enemy an entry point into my life. It's at this entry point um, that where he can have access to my life, then there I could lose the battle. So let me give you an example of how that could work. God is righteous, so God would never steal, right? God is righteous, he would never empty out my bank account and steal it. God tells me to be righteous, so I should never steal. But I disregard God's way, and I go and I steal a car. And after I steal a car, I get caught. And because I get caught, I end up being prosecuted, I go to jail, where then I'm limited and I live less than God might have wanted for me. I'm limited in my ability to do many of the things that I wish I could do, including serving God in some of the capacities that I'd like to serve Him in. And there in that prison, it's going to be a dark place, I'm going to be exposed to great darkness and evil. And we could say this, in that situation, because I didn't act righteously, the enemy has won the battle in my life. Now, does that make sense? Seems that's like a pretty simple thing. So I choose to live a good, righteous life, and in the process, I eliminate the entry points of the devil. I win, he loses, right? Well, yes and no. And this is what we need to understand. Yes. All of that is true. If we lived a perfectly righteous life, many of the entry points that the devil could access in our lives with would be closed to him so he'd have no access. But herein lies the problem with that interpretation of what the Apostle Paul is really not saying here. Paul wrote something else. He wrote in Romans chapter 3, verse 10 something. He says this, There is none righteous, not even one. See, we need to understand what Paul is not saying in Ephesians 6 when he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. He is not saying that you and me can on our own try really hard to defeat the devil by living really good, righteous lives. 
But this is what a lot of people want to believe. It's called, it's called self-willed religion. That we can just try really hard to live good, righteous lives, and by that the devil will be eliminated from our lives. Well, here's the problem with this. None of us is perfect. None of us is perfectly righteous. So the devil will always have entry points. If you, know, if you are the, the one on your own fighting with him by your good intended religion, he still will always have, right, he'll have entry points into your life. So if this is not about us just trying really hard to live spotless lives so the devil can't get to us, then what in the world is the Apostle Paul talking about here? Well, let me tell you a story that I think is going to shed some light on it. Now, it's a story, I don't think, think my kids have ever heard this story. You know, here's how I like the Holy Spirit. You're thinking about something, you're working through something, and something comes into your mind, and you go, where in the world did that come from? I'm always convinced it's the Holy Spirit. So let me tell you a story from almost a million years ago when I was in high school. So not quite a million, but a long, long, long time ago. When I was in high school, I had, right before high school, I had braces. Now, braces now are pretty cool. Kids seem to like having braces, different colors and stuff like that. And no one teases you about them too much. But I had braces, and we got teased incessantly if we wore braces. And then after you wore braces, you had a retainer you had to wear. Now, you still have retainers, but you didn't have the retainers that, like, we had. So then imagine this. Our braces didn't glue on your teeth. Ours had big metal bands that they pounded on your teeth with a mallet, with a hammer, and a stick. Anybody else have those? I mean, oh, it was horrible. And then they would tighten them up. It was horrible. But then when you got those things off, and the crazy thing is my teeth are crooked now. They used to be perfect. But they were, they were perfect one, one time. But you had to wear a retainer. Well, the retainers aren't these nice little plastic things that you have. Ours were made out of some kind of clay. And if you dropped them, they broke. So mine finally stopped wearing it because the guy wouldn't, the orthodontist wouldn't replace it anymore. Because if you just drop it like this far, it would break. Because it's a metal under tension with this clay thing and you just stick it in your mouth. And so in school, I had to wear a retainer on my bottom teeth. And so it was on my bottom. And so here's the problem. When I would try to talk with my retainer, I would talk like this. I was slurring my words because you couldn't put your tongue up to your back of your teeth because you had this big honking thing inside your mouth. You talk about not school not being fun. That didn't make school very fun. And so I would kind of slur my words when I would talk. But one time in math class, I remember the teacher's name was Ed Slager. I don't remember anything about school hardly, but this guy's name was Eddie Slager. He was my calculus teacher and, and uh, it was a math class. And I'm in that class and there's this big guy named Brian. Now, he has the exact same last name as me. So we have lockers next to each other. But he's big. Star of the basketball team. Um, super popular. Big, huge, tall guy. I mean, literally, like, at that point, two feet taller than me. You know, he's like these guys. He was shaving when he was six. You know? And uh, so, he's, so he's in the class, kind of in the back. I'm kind of in the front, sign seating. And I'm slurring in Eddie Slagger's class, answering a question probably about physics or something. Or calculus. And as I'm doing that, he starts going in the back of the class, and he's mocking me as I'm trying to add it. So I wasn't saved. Remember when I talked about faith path where I came on in the middle of the path? So I didn't have a good mom. I had a good mom and dad, but they weren't raising me a certain way. I'll actually talk about something my dad said later. And so he's mocking me, and I don't like that very much. And so I stand up in the middle of the classroom, and I walk back to his chair. And he's a big dude. He's big. 
And he kind of is facing me sideways. And as soon as he says, I just punch him right in the side. I hit him right in the kidney. I dropped him right in his chair. Just pull right down. And I just walked back to my chair and I sat down. And no one, teacher never said a word. Not one word. I walk up there, bam, I hit the guy, down he goes. I walk back, I sit in my chair and let's go on with physics. You know, the teacher is probably actually happy about it because somebody finally punched the guy. Well, there's a problem in this story. Remember I said he was really big? He was a big guy. And when I was in high school, you might not know it now, but they used to call me Little Larson. I grew like three inches after high school. So I, was, I didn't hit 100 pounds until my freshman year of high school. So I was a little guy. So, you know, he was shaving at six. I didn't start shaving until 26 hardly, you know. So, so you know, so I was little. He's, he's a great big guy. I'm a little guy. And I just, boom, put him down. And I used to have a really, I used to have a really bad temper. And I put the guy down. Well, here's the problem. He's big and classes only last 45 minutes. So we all know what's going to happen after class. It's kind of hard to concentrate on physics when you know the guy who's two feet taller than you, you just punched in class. And so after class, um, I head to my locker, and he catches up his lockers. We have the same last name. His locker, our lockers were by alphabetical order. Our lockers are next to each other. I'm like, I can't get away from the guy. And he catches up to me, and he, and he was not mad. He's just like, well, you know what i got to do. <laughs> because I couldn't embarrass him like that. I'm like, yeah, I get it. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm not going to really fight back too much. So he literally grabs me, he picks me up and slams me against the lockers. My feet are off the ground. And what's honestly true, I hear my dad's voice, and I've never told my boys this, I don't think. My dad always said, Mark, don't fight. But if you do fight, fight dirty and win. <laughs> and so, so, so I'm up as I'm in the air. He's holding me like this. I'm thinking, I can kick him in a strategic place. I can put him down. It'll be all over. But I'm thinking... That might not end well. What if I miss? You know, he's a big guy and I got my locker. So I just kind of sit there and he goes, boom, and he knees me in the stomach and throws me in the ground. And, uh, and he's not really that mad, so he just walks away. I go to my class. He didn't really hurt me bad. I get my books and I go to my class next class. So I get to my next class and I sit next to a guy named Peter. Now, Peter, I only remember this because Peter is a distant cousin of mine, but I never knew him. We had moved my freshman year. We moved from Cedarburg to Kewaskum. I'm now in Kewaskum. It's like my first or second year there. And so I'm in Kewaskum. And what's interesting thing, my parents moved us there to get us out of the drugs and stuff. But it was way worse there. Um, and so I'm in, I'm in Kewaskum. And, you know, I'm, I'm in my next class, rather. And Peter, this guy who's his distant cousin that I, that I come to find out, um, he's my mom's cousin's kid. He, att- he attended church, our school there, and, and he knew that we were cousins, and so somehow we knew we got to meet each other. We weren't friends at all, just knew that, hey, we're, we're cousins. Well, obviously, I must have kind of looked upset because Peter asked me what was wrong. And so I told him what happened with Brian and what happened, and, and he didn't really say anything. He just sat there and, okay. And, and he, was, uh, you know, uh, he, was, he was the toughest dude in the school. He really was. He was as big as the other guy almost, but twice as strong, and he was a fighter. And he was pretty mean. And so it just kind of goes on and didn't say anything. And so I go through that day wondering if I'm going to run back into the guy that I punched and he need me and, and we're going to have a confrontation again. Fortunately, I didn't see him. But the next day, I see this distant cousin, Peter. And he's like, just nonchalantly walks up to me and says, oh, by the way, uh, I talked to Brian. Uh, you'll never have a problem with him again because I said if he ever touches you, I'll beat him to, a, I'll beat him to a inch of his life. So I'll kill him. And I'm like, hey, 
cool, man. <laughs> this is awesome. Matter of fact, I had carte blanche the rest of high school because everybody knew Peter would beat you up if you did anything to little Larson. So it was awesome. But so he, he, he protected me, and, and Brian nor anybody else hardly ever really bothered me again. So you say, what in the world does that have to do? You're shaking your heads. What does that have to do with the armor of God? You remember that we said that these pieces of the armor of God are all ways that God has given us, God has given to us to render the devil impotent or powerless. These weapons are never about us simply through self-effort or trying harder fighting against the devil. These are about inviting God to protect you the way that Peter protected me. God winning on your behalf. That's what this is all. All the armor of God is really about is God winning, you inviting God to protect you and God winning on your behalf. Because you will never be smart enough or strong enough or good enough to go toe-to-toe with the devil But Jesus is, and Jesus has, Jesus already won, and he, when he rose from the dead, and he already is tougher and bigger and stronger and can win, and the spiritual warfare is about inviting him to fight for you. See, when Paul tells us to put on the breastplate of righteousness, he is talking about understanding that in Christ, the righteousness of Christ is given to us, that we get the righteousness of Christ. Listen to something. Grab your Bible and turn to the book of Philippians. And see how the Apostle Paul describes this exact thing in the letters of the Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. It's just, if you're in Ephesians, turn a couple pages. Ephesians, Philippians rather, chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says here about this. It says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again is no trouble to me, and it safeguards you. Beware of the dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and the glory of Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as of the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, And count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Verse 9. And may be found in Him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, or keeping the rules, trying really hard to keep the rules, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Friends, Paul understands that the righteousness that will defeat the devil's schemes toward us is the righteousness of Christ that is given to us when we become one with Christ at salvation. 
Friends, we have way too low of an understanding of what happens when we come to Christ and He saves us. Way too of a low. Salvation isn't just simply about believing some doctrinal statements and joining a church and cleaning up your life on the outside a little bit. But that's what a lot of people think it is. Salvation, coming to Christ, is about transformation. It's about Jesus takes our sins away and He gives us His righteousness. That's why Scripture says we're new creations in Christ. So to put on the armor of God is to realize that you are in Christ and that His righteousness is now yours. Now get ready, because this next statement is the point of the entire sermon. It's how the spiritual warfare tied to righteousness works. So are you ready? So when the devil lies to you, and is he going to lie to you? Yes. When a devil slanders you to yourself or you other people to you, is he going to do that? Yes. So when the devil lies to you and slanders you, you can stop him in his tracks. And this is what you say. You say, well, devil, that may have been true about the old Mark. Sure, I was what you say I was, devil. All of your accusations were true about me. But now I'm a new creation in Christ. His righteousness is mine. All that's good and true about Jesus is good and true about me. Not because of myself, Alfred, but because of his great gift of grace of himself in my life. So his righteousness is now my righteousness. No, devil, you are not fighting against me anymore. Now you are fighting against Jesus in me. Now you're fighting against Jesus in front of me. Now you're fighting against Jesus behind me. Now you're fighting against Jesus above me. Now you're fighting against Jesus below me. His righteousness renders your attacks impotent, devil. And that's what you have to do to win. You talk back to the devil. He lies to you say, that's not true. I was that guy, but I'm not that guy anymore. Now I'm a new creation in Christ. And His righteousness is my righteousness. And you don't have entry points the way you had them anymore, devil, because I'm in Christ. So to win, how do we win? We need to dwell in Christ. We need to put aside our own self-willed, independent existence. And friends, this is the biggest battle. You say this, this is what people would do with Jesus. They take Jesus halfway. And they say, well, I kind of like Jesus in my life, but I really want to run it my way. And he'll say, fine, go ahead and do it. But here's the deal. You'll lose every time because you're fighting devil. You are fighting Brian and he's too big for you. Ask Peter to do the fighting for you. Say, hey, Pete, go take care of it. That's what this is all about. You need to dwell in Christ to put aside yourself willed, independent existence. That's what the Apostle Paul writes about in Philippians 3. He said, I have every reason to brag. I have all the, all the pedigree. I have all the experience. I have all the accolades. That's what he's talking about. But he says, that's garbage. It's dung. I put it aside. I throw it away because I want to find Jesus. I want to know Christ. And when you live in that life of knowing Christ, you put away the self-willed, independent existence and you trade it in for the good and beautiful life of living according to the imputed righteousness of Jesus, living deep in the kingdom of God, where Jesus rules and reigns, that's where you get the victory. Friends, this is an amazing truth that will change your life. If you'll get this, it's not just about you trying harder. I could have tried to fight Brian. I could have won that one 
I, I won once in the classroom. I could have probably won the second battle. I'm pretty sure I could have taken him out. But my locker was next to him, and he would have had a chance every other day to come and fight against me. And he was bigger, and he was stronger, and he would have won. God says that. Paul's saying that's not how you fight. You put on righteousness, but not your righteousness, not good works, not trying harder. It is, you put on the righteousness of Christ. You live deep in the kingdom of God. You put aside your, your life of just saying, I'm going to do it. You know what? I'm a man's man. I'm going to do it my way. Go ahead and do it. You'll lose every time. Because the devil's bigger and stronger and smarter and tougher than you are every time. That's not to make you feel bad. That's to say, okay, that's just reality. But what do I know? Jesus in me. Jesus in front of me. Jesus behind me. Jesus above me. Jesus below me. I can, I can be protected in Christ and live the beautiful life of this imputed righteousness of Jesus. Imputed means given to us. Righteousness of Jesus. We can live deep in the kingdom of God where Jesus rules and reigns and protects us. Friends, that will change your life. Now let me wrap this up by giving you one more example of the difference, because I think we need to understand the difference. Because the reason I approach it the way I did today is I think most of us believe what this is talking about is just try harder, live a more spotless life, you know, do the, clean the outside of the pot. But Jesus is trying to say, no, 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 that's not what it's about. He's going to actually say, if you do the inside work, the outside will take care of itself. That's the whole Sermon on the Mount. But so, so one more I want to take to wrap this up. I want to give you one more example of the difference there is between living according to your own righteousness and living dependent on Jesus' righteousness. So grab your Bibles. Turn to Luke chapter 18. Jesus is telling a parable in Luke chapter 18. So it's a story to communicate a truth, and Jesus is telling it. So it must be true, Right? If I make up a story to tell you a truth, I might get it wrong. Jesus makes up a story to tell you a truth, it's always right. So look what he says here in Matthew 18. Look at verses 9 through 14. Luke. Did I, I'm sorry, I messed you all up. Luke. I'm getting so excited, I forgot where I was. Luke 19. 18. Ah, gotcha. <laughs> Luke 18, verse 9. And he also told this parable. To some people, look at this is who he told it to. He, he told it in a church setting. He told this in church. He told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. The number one accusation made against the church world in America today is that how the world thinks we think about them. That's the number one accusation. That we trust in ourselves. So he wrote to people who trust in themselves that they were righteous or they were good enough and they viewed others with contempt or they looked down on other people. Here's a parable he told to, to counteract that. It says, Two men went in, up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, who's a great religious leader, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people a swindler, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast uh, twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, Jesus' words, I tell you, 
this man, the tax collector, this man went to his house justified. Justified means just as if you had never sinned. He went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let me ask you this one question based on reading that parable. Which of these two men were more vulnerable to the schemes and attacks of the devil? The Pharisee or the tax collector? The Pharisee. Now let's remember who he is. He was good. He was very religious. He was very devout. I think today he just might have made the cut to be in some ways a God pastor. Maybe. Not sure. He was very devout. Okay? But who did he trust in? Who did he depend upon? Himself. His own hard-working self-effort, self-righteousness. And friends, the point Jesus is trying to make is that will cause you to fail every time because your righteousness isn't, isn't so righteous that you can stand up against the attacks of the devil and your right self-righteousness will actually be the inroads for the devil to come into your life. So Jesus elevates humility. Humility is not being weak. Humility is saying, I just know where my strength comes from. It's being humble in the sense that God is great and I am under him and I'm so grateful for that. Jesus told this story so we wouldn't make the same mistake. We are no match for the schemes of the devil. And self-righteousness gives the devil, it enables the devil, gives him opportunities and possibilities to deceive, to deceive you and lie to you and slander you to yourself and others to you. They're all opportunities because of self-righteousness. But the tax collector, who didn't do anything good and righteous, He knew he needed a Savior. He knew he needed help. He knew Peter had to fight the battle for him. He knew his righteousness could not cut it. So he humbles himself and he calls out to God for mercy. Now in the scope of spiritual warfare, listen friends, in that posture, there is no room for the devil's schemes. In that posture of humility then, there is no access for the devil's schemes, just a place for Jesus to respond in love, for him to transform you by giving his righteousness, his very presence to you, um, so that you can then walk in Jesus' strength, not your own. And friends, that is the place of spiritual victory. When you walk in that place with Jesus' strength, being your strength, so you're not depending on your own strength. So one final comment, because some of your brains won't handle this without me saying this. Yes, as we trust in and live in the righteousness of Christ, as opposed to self-righteousness, yes, we will then live good lives. We will then triumph over sin. We will try hard to do the right thing. But it comes as an outflow of the ever-dwelling righteousness of Christ within us. Living in Christ's righteousness is never an excuse to sin. No, it is the doorway into true holiness and great spiritual victory. 
That's why Paul says, if you want to win against the scheme, the asterisk at the end of the book, hey, the devil's going to try to beat you, but God's given you all you need. He says, listen, you want to win? Then put on the breastplate of Jesus' righteousness and in Christ stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Amen? Amen. God has given us all that we could ever need to stand firm. It's all about His provision, not about us just trying harder. And as I thought about this today and prayed about this today, I just imagined it has to be true that some of us in here have been trying really hard to win some battles on our own. We've been, you're, you're embarrassed to tell anybody else. So you have things, whatever they could be, they could be you know, issues of unforgiveness or, or anger or addiction or whatever, you know, fill in the blank, blah, 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 anything you're dealing with. You've been trying really hard to win on your own. Well, today would be a great day to turn that over to Jesus and invite Him to fight for you. So I want to do this, and it's really amazing. You guys know, know I write a lot of notes. Suzanne stood here today and she said, let's do this. Let's imagine this is in your, in your, in your hands. I literally wrote down that I want to pray in a moment. And I want to pray with you and I want you to imagine exact words that you are holding that problem in your hands. And as we pray, you will then lift it to the Lord and surrender it unto Him and ask for Him to come in and do the transformation within you so that you, the righteousness of Christ is what wins. So Suzanne, if you would come and play something or whomever, I want us to stand together this morning. And I want to just close today by praying for our church, for you. And I want to invite you, if there is something in your life, there's a battle raging, you can come to church and smile real pretty, put on nice clothes, act like everything's great, but inside there's a battle raging. It's a battle of lust. It's a battle of of whatever. It's anger. It's unforgiveness. There's bitterness in your heart because somebody did you really wrong a long time ago. And that's true. It happened. But God wants to set you free from it today. And what I want you to do as we close, and I'm going to pray, I want you to literally, if you want to, I want you to put your hands like this, and I want you to imagine you place that into your hands. And as we're praying, what I want you to do is imagine that's there and and allow yourself to know it's real. Because a lot of times we deny it, we say it's not real. You're fighting pride. You're fighting this this, this fear of letting God do, letting go 100% and going all out with God. You place that in there. And you say, God, you know what, as we're praying... Today, I want, to, I want to lift it up to you and I want to release it to you. And I believe this. I believe the Spirit of the Lord is going to break some chains today. That's what spiritual warfare is all about. He's going to break some chains today. So join me in prayer this morning. Father, you are amazing. You're ever-present. Lord, our whole day's focus seems to have been upon just being aware of your reality in this place. At this moment of time, And Lord, you know the things that we battle with. We might not tell anybody else. It could be a secret sin. It could be something that's big and hurtful that's from the past. It could be whatever. But there's, there's things that we battle with. It's fear, God. It's fear of letting you in 100%. It's fear of saying that if I, give, if I go all in with Jesus, I, I'm out of control. I don't have any control anymore. And what will happen? And I've only been able to depend on myself. Lord, today, 
Would you help us? We even need your help to place it in our hands to give it to you. And so, Lord, whatever these various things are right now, we take them. We imagine that we're physically taking them and we place them in our hands. We hold it out in front of ourselves. You know what it is, God. We just whisper it to you. We say, this is, this is the reality of my life right now. I have been going toe-to-toe with somebody bigger, stronger, more capable, more wise. His name is the devil, and I've come up short time and time again. I've tried to fake it. I've tried to lie about it. I've tried to, to dull myself to it through various things. But the reality is, that's where I'm at. And this is what I'm holding in my hand. And Lord, you've told us something amazing. That at salvation, there comes a transfer. That you take on our sinfulness and you impute, you give to us your righteousness, your goodness. So that now we, as you literally dwell within us, we are not limited by ourselves anymore. But that your power literally flows within us to transform. And so Lord, we hold this thing out in front of you today. And we say, God, we're, we're enough of it. Enough of it. We're ready to say enough of it. We're ready to say it hasn't worked doing it ourselves. And we need your help. We always need your help. We can't fight the fight on our own. And so right now, Lord, we lift this before you and release it to you. We give it to you, Lord. We say take the burden away from us. Help us to win the battle. We are going to agree to do whatever you ask us to do, God. Whatever you ask us to do, we'll do. We're not, it doesn't mean there's no self-effort. It just means that we rely on you to guide us into what we should do. And so now, Lord, we lead this, give it to you. And we trust you, Lord, to take it and to heal us and to make us new. And so, Lord, we rest in now in just a moment, Suzanne's going to begin to sing. She begins to sing. I invite you just to find a place to pray. If you want to spend some time with the Lord, dealing with this thing, okay, God, I gave it to you now. And just allowing Him to minister to you, I challenge you to do that. You feel dismissed by the Holy Spirit, they quietly make your way out of the sanctuary and have a wonderful day in Jesus. But let's just turn this place into a place where we, where we say, God, we're like the, like the tax collector in the parable. We're saying we're not not relying on ourselves, on our self-effort right now. We're just abandoning ourselves to you and calling out out to you for mercy. So let's do that. Find a place to pray.